Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And good morning, Nina. Obviously, perhaps a little bit surprised to see yeah, you today. Yeah, not who I was expecting today. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, look, um, to everyone, our intrepid leader, Andrew, unfortunately, uh, the latest to be the victim of COVID. He's yeah. been struck down by it. He's on the mend and we wish him very well. But, um, very speedy recovery. Yeah, very speedy. Uh, <laughs> Nina and I, we'd be very happy to hand back the reins yeah. of several of the things that yeah. you've handed back to us uh, <laughs> this week. Um, but look, yeah, absolutely. You know, wish all the best to Andrew yeah. and Karen off doing her study today at the moment as well. So mum and dad aren't home and you get uh, Nina and I to carry you through for today yeah. instead. We get free so, rain today. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Who knows what the format will be? We could make it all different. Who knows? But, uh, singing songs and everything. <laughs> oh, look, I'm on board for that, as Nina well knows. <laughs> but look, um, before we get into the cases today, really just two sort of things just to bring to your attention. One is some more movements that we've been tracking and that I know with Andrew you've been tracking through the briefing around the gig economy. Another report handed down by the New South Wales Upper House just earlier this week, again, developing on these same sort of themes that we're seeing come out of both Victoria and New South Wales now about this kind of increasing regulation from an employment and safety perspective for employees or individuals in the gig economy. Our prediction really is that, you know, as we're coming up to this federal election, although both parties staying pretty quiet on industrial relations and employment issues more generally, uh, that we will start to see a bit of a shift, I think, into some more conversations about gig economy workers. Yeah. Yeah. Starting to become a focus for them, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Definitely an increased focus. And look, also, as we're heading into uh, a busy period of public holidays here, uh, just a reminder, obviously, when you've got Easter and then the week after we've got Anzac Day, you know, you might be thinking about, oh, am I having some, you know, risk of some increased absenteeism around the workforce when people look to take longer breaks and extending out those, those long weeks. Right? That's right. That's right. You know, it's hard when you're partying, eating all those uh, chocolate Easter eggs. They can put you, put you to sleep very quickly. Uh, so, look, just a reminder around this, you know, start talking to your employees now um, if people are looking to take longer periods of break to extend out their holidays. You know, start asking about it, get that put down as annual leave. And, look, if you have any employees after public holidays, uh, you know, call up sick, just make Make sure you're abiding by and following through uh, your documentation policy around that, getting your medical certificates and things like that. Yeah. All right, well, look, on to the cases for this week. So I've got a couple of interesting ones, as we always try to do. Um, the first one today, Oliver and um, Basari, is a sexual harassment case heard in VCAT that resulted in a pretty significant award of general damages, $150,000 pretty significant but part of more of an increasing trend that we're seeing in this jurisdiction to have um, much more significant damages awards. Here, in a young woman working in a male grooming salon, as it was described in the case. Called Man O' Man. Yeah, a great name. It did have a great name. Obviously not very great people running it, unfortunately. (laughs) She was one of several female employees who worked there but was subjected to some pretty significant repeated very um, disgusting behaviour. Yeah, harassment, sexual harassment, very clearly sexual harassment uh, conduct basically, you know, over a course of time 
that ultimately culminated in a sexual assault in the workplace. The employee who committed the assault was charged with a criminal offence because of that conduct. And at this in this case, basically, the employer did agree that all that conduct had occurred. So I didn't seek to dispute the conduct and the individual employee, not actually a named party in this at all. Instead, what we saw here and what we increasingly see in this jurisdiction was that the employee brought the claim both one against the actual individual director of the business and then the business itself on two fronts, basically, against the director looking at it from an aided, abetted or counselled, the sexual harassment perspective, and then for the business from a vicarious liability perspective. And what is vicarious liability? Yes, yes, that's a great question, (laughs) Nina. So look, vicarious liability, particularly in this sexual harassment space, what we're talking about here is it's a legal recognition that an individual employer, an individual's employer, excuse me, uh, can be held liable for the actions of their employee, even though, you know, obviously as a corporate entity, it cannot have engaged itself in sexual harassment of the individual. And that was ultimately what was found here in the case. The director uh, was not found to have aided, abetted or cancelled the sexual harassment because, and what flowed into the vicarious liability, the director basically, she put no effort in to try to resolve or solve any of the issues that were sitting around the sexual harassment. And because of that, you know, basically didn't follow up any complaints, didn't, you know, had a policy lied to the tribunal about when the policy came into place. And the tribunal basically said, look, you know, you've done nothing here. You're clearly, this is a situation that's resulted from this business's poor conduct, going to find it vicariously liable and make a damages amount for 150k. Important to note as well, no claim made for economic loss in this one, just damages for pain, hurt and suffering. So it could have potentially been even more significant from the financial perspective too. Yeah, and look, these claims are going to be more common because it's really where the money's at to claim it against the business rather than the perpetrator themselves. Mm-hmm. And like um, Matt was saying, basically all they had was a policy and they never train anyone in it or anything. So just really easy steps that a business can take to protect themselves and not have to face these types of claims. Oh, absolutely. Look, proactive, being proactive around these sorts of issues, really important. You know, the days of hiding behind a written document that says that you'll deal with sexual harassment, but then, as we saw in this case, doing nothing, well and truly over. And if you do it, you're going to end up damaging someone really badly, which this, you know, young woman who brought this claim was, and then also facing significant damages claims. So pretty significant one. Um, So look on to our next case. This one, if you've spoken to me uh, (laughs) the last several months or, you know, you would have heard Andrew, of course, mention as well, we always get very excited when there's high court cases about employment law issues. And you would have, of course, heard Andrew talk about the JAMSEC and personnel contracting decisions, which were decisions that really reset the law around when someone is an employee or an independent contractor. Now, we've been following these really closely and seeing what the developments have been subsequently. And here we have in Prusna and Cayley Constructions, our first example of a real substantive decision being made after the handing down of those High Court decisions. Now, in this case, really the circumstances of it, nothing particularly novel or unique or different, um, sort of the kind of run-of-the-mill, if I can put it that way, issues that you would expect to see in an employee versus independent contractor 
sort of case here, you know, relatively long-running relationship of about, you know, 12 to 14 years between the individual and the employer slash uh, contracting entity, you know, sort of the same sort of things that we see a lot, you know, doing the same sort of hours all the time. Uh, you know, the individual is given supervisory responsibilities over people in the business, all sorts of factors like that. But what we saw here that I think is really important that stands out to us is the judge said in this one, well, look, I'm, you know, I'm bound by these high court decisions. And what that means that I always have to do is to look at, well, what does the contract say about the relationship between these parties? And in this circumstance, there was no written contract. So what it turned on, of course, as we always see, what it turned on was a verbal conversation between the applicant and effectively a representative of the respondent from almost 10 years ago. And unsurprisingly, in both of their evidence, couldn't really properly articulate what the terms of that agreement was. So what we saw here was the judge said, okay, well, look, I've got to determine what does this agreement say and what does it say about whether they're employee or contractor. The judge said, well, look, I have to look at the post-contract conduct, but I need to do it now in accordance with these High Court cases in a different way than I would have done had it been before the cases, before the High Court decisions, would have looked at that conduct to say, what does this whole relationship look like? No longer what they're required to do. Instead, I look at this post contract conduct to determine what the terms of the agreement actually reached are. And ultimately what he found, the judge found was reached in the decision and in the agreement was that there was an agreement for the the invoicing for the services, an agreement for the provision of labour that was not only his own, and an agreement to be paid well and above an award rate. And in those circumstances, the judge said, applying the High Court decisions, this person's an independent contractor and not an employer. Yeah, so essentially it's still the written contract is key, but the multifactorial test is not dead, which is a common misconception. Yes, right? that's right. That's right. You know, we, we're getting a lot of this kind of, yes, contract is king, as you would have seen in, in, in many different circumstances. <laughs> but what those high court cases say is you apply that test to the contract here. We didn't have a written contract, so we had to go to the oral agreement instead. Had there been a written contract, the multifactorial test would have been applied to the terms of that contract. So control, you know, wearing the library of the business, all of those things still all relevant, but we look now instead not to what the relationship showed, but what the actual terms of the agreement showed instead. Yeah. Okay, on to the next case. Okay, so this is a safety case where Arkwood was the principal contractor. They had a crane contractor, Highlands, who was engaged to remove a centrifuge from a sewage treatment plant. And essentially what happened is when an inexperienced Highland truck driver decided to operate the crane, the crane boom hit the overhead power lines, resulting in the electric shock of two of the Arkwood employees. And surprisingly, in this case, Arkwood actually pled not guilty and said that they shouldn't be held liable at all because it was Highlands operating the crane. And as the specialised contractor, they should have been aware of the risks and managed accordingly. And the court said, yes, while that's normally the case, principal contractors can't be held liable if the risks pertain to an area that is demonstrably out of their expertise. In this case, 
it is a very obvious risk mm. that a crane could hit power lines, mm. and it's obvious to anyone. I mean, to you and me, yeah, so we yeah, don't absolutely. even work in that industry. No, no, I would assume that would happen. And yeah. there was evidence that Arkwood employees had pointed that out and still did nothing, mm. didn't choose to stop the work. And so basically they were found liable and they're no doubt going to get a really, really heavy sentence. Mm-hmm. But basically, look, you need to be aware that while you can rely on the expertise of your contractors, if there is an obvious risk, you have an obligation to stop the work if it is unsafe. Yeah, I think that's a really big takeaway from it, isn't it? Is that, yeah. Look, you've got your specialised contractors, but that doesn't, uh, you know, <laughs> remove your obligation to consider yeah. risks in, in your workplaces that you control. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, look, yeah, now on to our, uh, you know, big topic of today. As you would have sat here with Andrew and Karen over the last several weeks, we've been focusing quite a lot on various different aspects relating to what you need to do as part of investigations into employee misconduct, yep. things like making sure that you make findings in accordance with the Brigginshaw standard and things of that nature. Today, we're kind of taking it a little bit to the next step, which is to really look at, well, look, what do you do once you finalise that sort of investigation and how do you do it right? And look, we see a lot, unfortunately, a lot of misunderstanding around what you have to do here in terms of once you've had your investigation finalised and completed. And more often than not, the reason why these turn into big disputes with employees in the unfair dismissal and general protection sense is not so much from actually what was investigated as no. part of the investigation, but what you do after the yes. investigation Procedure is deficiencies. Concluded. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, look, to run you through a couple of the things that really we say that you need to have a think about and do once you've finalised your kind of investigation process, one of the main ones, of course, to focus on is the requirement for confidentiality. You should have notified everyone involved in the investigation, witnesses, complainant, alleged perpetrators um, of that confidentiality obligation at the beginning. But once you kind of follow through and you finalise that investigation, you know, making sure that you do so at the end as well. Now, once you've finalised that sort of investigation process, you've made your findings of fact, that next step that is often forgotten is the communication aspect of that, you know. So you've got your report. It's covered, hopefully, by legal professional (laughs) privilege. Please Uh, have it covered. Please have it covered by legal (laughs) professional privilege. And if you need help with that, let us know. (laughs) Get it covered by legal professional privilege. Summarise what the findings are. Now, that's not necessarily a summary of all the evidence again because, you know, you're not required to demonstrate all that evidence to the people involved in this. But summarising what the findings are and in writing communicating that to all the different participants and keeping in mind that the way that they participate in this process, their role in it, means that you have to think differently about how you might communicate with them. So if it's the complainant, for example, you know, considering, okay, well, look, are these findings, you know, in accordance with what their expectations might be? You know, often, more often than not, complainants will make several complaints and some of them you might not ultimately find to be proven in fact. And that might be upsetting to someone who is a complainant, particularly if they feel aggrieved generally about what's going on. So communicating those findings in writing, but also in the context of, you know, having a meeting with that person where they have a support person and so on, so that you can convey that in an emotionally considerate and sensitive way, really, really important. Um, 
to your witnesses as well. Obviously, you can't leave them in the lurch about something that they've participated in. They need to understand that there's been a conclusion to this process, letting them know the findings under that confidentiality as well lets them know that it's been brought to an end. Uh, And then obviously, of course, to your perpetrators too. So if you've found, made findings about things that have involved their conduct, it's really important, of course, to summarise that and inform them of that. But it's the next step, which is the most important, and that's why I'll hand to Nina to walk you through. Yeah, look, after you finalise the findings and done all the communications, like Matt has pointed out, I think a lot of times we find clients saying, well, it's very clearly a case where they should be terminated because the findings make it clear that they are breached and they forget to actually go through the process of putting it to them because the findings themselves aren't allegations. Those are finalised. But then you need to take the findings and put them in a show cause letter to outline what are the specific allegations of serious misconduct or misconduct that the employees need to have an opportunity to respond to and essentially show cause as to why their employment should not be terminated. Karen has provided a really, really useful slide of all the do's and don'ts. So we're just going to talk about some of the real key Mm. things that we see, which is a problem. So always, always offer to have a support person there with them. As you know, it's one of the criteria in harshness um, when there's an unfair dismissal. But remember, the role of a support person is really there just to provide support. They should not be speaking on behalf of the employee themselves. Always be respectful and generous in any of your communication, whether that's in writing or in person. Always Keep in mind that whatever you do could be in front of a commissioner or a judge one day. And so you want to be as respectful as possible because that's going to could possibly become evidence one day. Yeah, absolutely. And it ties very much into the point about predetermining the outcome. Exactly, yeah. On that point, please don't ever bring in a termination letter to the show cause meeting. Mm -hmm. It just sets a bad tone and it's pretty obvious then that you've already made the decision. Whenever... An employee raises something, justification, additional information. The obligation is on you to actually consider that information. Mm -hmm. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Actually take the time, step out of the room, think about it. Is it something that you need to look into further and test? If that's the case, then you really do need to take the time to do that. Mm. You don't want your termination to fall over at the last step because there's deficiencies in procedural fairness. Yeah, and look, quickly, plaintiff employment lawyers have switched on to this. I've had several occasions where in an unfair dismissal application, the date-stamped nature of the actual termination letter has been brought up. So clients walked into the room having already prepared and finalised the letter, printed it out on the desk ready to go, and that then comes back to haunt them when they email the soft copy. So, yeah, being really careful around this is really, really important. Yeah, and just one final thing, actually two final things I just (laughs) want to raise, is that oftentimes when you've issued the show cause letter, the investigation then reveals that there are other allegations that have come to light, and it's very, very tempting to try to just get it all done in one shot, put it to them in the show cause meeting, but... Look, it's not giving them a genuine opportunity to consider the allegations and it's really, really problematic to do that. Much better just have them respond to those allegations and then organise a subsequent meeting for them to respond to the new allegations. Although it delays the process, it will remove the risk and 
time and time again in unfair dismissal cases, there's always a valid reason mm. and it's the procedural fairness that it falls apart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then the final thing is often the alleged perpetrator will try to argue with you on the point and you just need to make sure that you almost act clinical in mm. the meeting. The purpose of the meeting is simply to get their point of view. It's not to argue, you know, who should have done the lot, who should have done this, because you're not making a decision at that time. The purpose is only for them to present their point of view for you to consider and then you'll come back with a decision. So please avoid any of that stuff. Yeah, not a retread of the investigation exactly. when you get to that stage. So important to remember that part. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, on to the case study for today then. And uh, Nina gets the grand honour of reading <laughs> this, authored by our intrepid leader himself, Andrew, today. So I'll let, I'll let Nina go. So Kimba was a young electrical engineering graduate undertaking her graduate program at Australian National Treatment, or ANT, a specialist in managing metals treatment in high-energy ignition systems in industrial engines. Kimba had experienced a haunting and traumatic event involving the electrocution of a co-worker. It had undermined her capacity to focus and she made mistakes around calculations and details. ANT had an EAP program called Health Is Here, H-I-H, love Andrew's little touches. <laughs> Kimber was directed to attend EAP after the event and now received regular counselling from H-I-H. She had not been getting better. In fact, everyone around her knew she was getting worse. Her doctor had diagnosed her with PTSD and advised H-I-H she needed specific trauma counselling and copied in the head of HR for ANT, explaining why it was critical. The head of HR, Byron Smedley, attended a specialist HR course for HR managers on trauma only a month before receiving the email from Kimber's GP. As part of the HR course, the trainer made it clear why a specialist practitioner was required. The training also set out some obvious don'ts when counselling. Byron met with Kimber on Friday, the 4th of March, and he spoke privately to Kimber and asked how the support was going. Kimber disclosed some of the questioning, the re-agitation of the traumatic event through different counsellors, and her GP's concerns they were not skilled and experienced. They had offered a mental health plan with a specialist provider, but Kimber had stuck with HIH because A&T provided it and she wanted to do the right thing. Byron said he was concerned and understood what her GP had said. He had made no comment about her performance. The alarm bells from his training were ringing. Four weeks later, Kimber's direct supervisor, Calvin, called Kimber into a room to discuss her performance. Everyone agreed Kimber was struggling. She was late for work, her grooming had dropped off, she was visibly anxious, teary and isolated. Not the Kimber of a year ago and even worse than when Byron had seen her. Kimber explained she was a trauma victim and her boss, Calvin, explained he had spoken to Byron and her underperformance was not related to her trauma. She immediately explained that was not true. Kimber had flashbacks at times when she was awake, terrible nightmares, intrusive thoughts, and started crying compulsively. Calvin said he would need to give her a final warning about her attention to detail and concluded the meeting. Kimber immediately left work and put in a workers' compensation claim. Her following urgent appointment with a psychiatrist led to a report highly critical of HIH. It stated categorically that their hapless counsellors weren't skilled in trauma counselling and had significantly injured her. 
all right, now Andrew will uh, have a go at us so we don't stick very closely to the timing around that. So <laughs> minute is the all you get. So look, yes, yeah, so if Kimber went to the safety regulator, could Ant say it was reasonable for them to rely on the skilled contractor? Well, look, they absolutely could try, but in absolutely <laughs> no way, no, absolutely in no way would it be reasonable. You know, in the circumstances where the hazard that was occurring was so obvious, it was not sufficient in the circumstances to simply, you know, kind yeah. of... Uh, delegate that responsibility. And it had been flagged with them several times, including by the specialist contractor. So they would have nowhere to hide to make this argument. Absolutely. You know, it's not sufficient just to put something in between. You've got to actually (laughs) listen to that uh, entity if you are engaging (laughs) them. Um, And then obviously, you know, that does not um, absolve you of your own responsibility to look at those sorts of hazards. So as Kimber had raised a safety concern with Calvin, could Calvin proceed to complete the disciplinary meeting? A huge no on this one. <laughs> um, look, in these circumstances, again, where that safety concern has been very clearly articulated, this considerable amount of risk that sits around proceeding with that performance issue, not only, you know, although in this circumstance it's a, a kind of final warning that's issued, that absolutely could be considered to be adverse action in the circumstances, a retaliatory bit of conduct. Directly related. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely directly related. And look, importantly too, perhaps a little bit lesser known, but there are similar anti-discrimination provisions that sit under the OHS Act that would be really relevant here, you know, where that's safety complaint has been so, again, clearly articulated Mm -hmm. to proceed to something like that in the circumstances where the two things cannot be disaggregated from one another would be a really, really big issue here. So So what would you have recommended that they do instead? Oh, absolutely. Look, the the key thing to do in this circumstance, although a little bit frustrating, uh, would be to put an immediate hold, immediate hold on that sort of disciplinary process, that performance management process, uh, while other supports are offered to the employee in particular and while any of these uh, complaints that have been raised are properly investigated and completed themselves before you come back to that performance management process. Oh, and finally, would Kimber have a valid workers' compensation claim? Well, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> again. No, so, no, they're pretty clear ones yeah. on this one. I mean, in these sort of circumstances, you know, clear knowledge of an injury that's arisen from a traumatic event that she witnessed in the workplace to begin with, and then almost every subsequent step engaged in by the employing entity here has exacerbated that injury. Exactly. It's directly linked back to the workplace. Yeah. Never seen a more clear. <laughs> no, no, no. If you follow the breadcrumbs from start to finish on this one, you'll see that there is that real risk that sat around that kind of exacerbating that injury and a real problem here. So have a valid workers' compensation claim, absolutely, absolutely in this circumstance. Oh, look at that. We yeah. are ahead of time. Oh, look, yeah. Beat Andrew. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, now we've just got to beat him with the reviews again and we won't hear of the end of it until months <laughs> afterwards. But look, thank you so much, everyone, yes. for joining us this week. Um, we hope, uh, you know, Nina and I have been an acceptable substitute for <laughs> Andrew and Karen. I'm sure you'll see us again um, it's in the future running this. Just a reminder, uh, next week, no Friday workplace briefing because it is Good Friday. I think we'll be back on the April 22nd. 22nd yes. The 22nd. So I wish you all a really wonderful uh break if you get one hopefully over easter and uh, you know as always we value your feedback so please reach out let us know if we did well did better than andrew <laughs> uh, and so on so thanks so much everyone and thanks for joining us 
Oh, and um, oh, one sorry. final thing, uh, we do have prepared a template letter, show cause letter. So if anyone wants that for guidance, please send an email to events at fcwlawyers.com.au. Yeah, everyone have a great break. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye.